This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 24 of Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. Today's episode is about women and money, from disempowerment to agency and empowerment. And it's my great delight to have with me today my guest, Jane Monica Jones. Jane is a financial therapist and somatic experiencing therapist. She's a pioneer in the study of the psychological and behavioural challenges with money and financial practices, such as gambling, overt financial risk, retail therapy, overspending and under-earning. Jane's the author of The Billionaire Buddha and Money Mental Health Cards. She's the host of the Financial Therapy Podcast. Welcome, Jane. Amanda, thank you for having me and thank you for having me on the show again. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Oh, Jane, we had to have you back. Your first podcast on this show has done so well. It's been so popular that I was so looking forward to having you back again to discuss today this very important issue about women and money. And look, we first met at the finance symposium of the Mental Health Foundation Australia. And it was so interesting to hear you discussing financial therapy and the the importance of it. And I guess, you know, historically, women have had so much inequity and even been oppressed in ways that, that really impact them financially. And history and traditions in societies often took agency from women or never provided agency and certainly disempowered women. And there's been so much control of women, typically, historically, in Western societies that a lot of younger people, I think, don't know about because, thankfully, we have much more equality these days. So I think it's important for us to just make younger people aware that there's a long historic tradition of women being oppressed financially and not being educated to deal with finances, not being in a position to be able to be empowered financially. And in our lifetime, of course, we've seen major historic changes and certainly in our mother's lifetimes. So marriage historically was, you know, the main goal was to establish alliances between families and, in fact, to secure the property and finances of the female who was deemed very much inequipped to deal with money and not entitled, I think, so to deal with money. In fact, females were considered for a long time to be less intelligent than men simply because our brain's typically smaller. Mm. Uh, Of course, that's been completely uh, disproven. And and even the right to vote, I think, you know, again, young people or contemporary society just takes that as a given. But women had to fight so hard to get the vote. So that in New Zealand, it was the first country really that gave the vote to women in 1893. In Australia, it wasn't till 1902 and the United States 1920, and that's really hard to, to consider when you, you think of, that's quite recent. And then contraception, again, the real impact, disempowerment of women via the inability to control birth and conception, well, that didn't even come to Australia till 1961. Yeah. Look, I think, you know, that whole, we sort of have a term for what you're describing there really is financial abuse. Financial abuse is not being able to have either access to funds or access to the right to work or having an ability to be able to have 
agency around our Mm. own sense of money. Now, we know that it's very big. There's a lot of narrative around financial abuse, which is fantastic. Yes. But, yeah, we have to understand that it's historic financial abuse that has really entrapped women in many ways, psychologically, behaviorally, levels of empowerment or lack of empowerment. So it it really sits in a very global sense. It's not just the money. It's also the sense of capacity and self-agency that we don't have in a way because of this economic abuse, chronic, intergenerational, Mm. ancestral financial abuse, basically. So yes, it's great that we are now talking about it, but there are real and tangible impacts of the fact of having that oppression for money and and women having access to money. So it's, it's very, very powerful. So I'm glad that we're really talking about it and looking at this, you know, in this discussion that we'll look at the sort of psychological and behavioral challenges for women and money today. Absolutely, absolutely. And as we see, you know, often backward moves in the world these days, we we want to keep hold of these rights that women have, thankfully, and not let them slip away. That would be just a terrible thing. Yeah. Yeah, an ongoing empowerment of women over with money. Yeah. Look, it's it's really interesting. I mean, I have a large demographic is women that come and see me. You know, traditionally women are more likely to go and seek out mental health, you know, as we know, than say men. I certainly see lots of men too. I think this is the fact that I do financial therapy. <laughs> it's probably what pulls in more men. But yeah, and and there's various, you know, as we know as practitioners, we know that certain life stages bring up certain challenges. And it's really interesting to see how certain cohorts or certain generations at the moment have very unique challenges, mm. such as you know, my bracket, I'm over 50s, they had less access to financial literacy, financial decision-making and things like that and how that really affects the nervous system and the psychology. You know, when you're not – I kind of give this lovely analogy around learning an instrument. If you learn how to do an instrument when you're young, your capacity to gravitate and pick it up is a lot easier – or learn a language, the same sort of principle. But if you're forced to do, if your partner's died or you're, you know, separated or something like that, and then you're forced to have to manage money then you've never had exposure to, just like you've never learnt an instrument, it's really hard, you know, because you don't have that exposure and there's, you know, something comes from that confidence from exposure or confidence Mm. from support that we get that all confidence from giving autonomy and all yeah. that. And and those are sort of they're the soft, intangible qualities of relating with money that we mm. often don't think about, but they are profoundly important when it comes to confidence. Do I have the confidence to grow, expand, mm. take a mortgage on by myself, all those stuff. And that's all soft skills. It's not actually money skills that that is actually the soft skills. So yeah. When we're, when we're not socialized around money or being capable with money, it puts our sense of confidence in, in dealing with it behind, you know, on the back foot. So it's really Absolutely. interesting. Mm. Yeah. And, and of course, there are still many cultures these days that don't allow women to have those soft skills. And from our perspective as independent business women, I guess we see that 
you know, putting women very much at risk in some ways that anything could happen, as you say. Husbands can die. You know, women may not be wanting to remarry and have another man look after their finances. And so that's a trauma they face of being in the world, unable to survive and thrive, fend, thrive, fend for themselves, mm. not knowing the world of money and mm. and the economy and the way the economy works and worlds of, of work, of money work. Yeah. Being exposed to that for the first time as an adult would be terrifying. Yeah, exactly. Look, it's really interesting. I talk about this subject a lot and I was even talking to my partner about this interview and, you know, he was just sort of saying, I can't get that, like, if, you know, we're, we're exposed to money all the time. I mean, of course, we talk about money a lot in our, you know, as my profession. Yeah. He was like, well, you know, people are exposed to money. It's not like they're not exposed to money all the time, right? So your day-to-day transactional staff doing budget. And I said, darling, but there's something very different from doing transactional level to yeah. large quantities, large you know, future planning, capacity to be able to manage risk, internal capacity to manage risk, internal capacity to manage stress around fluctuation in prices and things is very different from day-to-day banking, you know. The level of effect on our whole being is, is far greater. And so the effect of whether we have confidence or we feel kind of wobbly around that is different. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a bit too simplistic for you to say, well, just because you know how to, you know, you, you're dealing with money every day, you're earning good income, you're, you know, having to pay your bills is a little bit different from really managing a portfolio, you yes. know, it's a bigger deal. It's going to ask more of you, you yes. know, and if you haven't got much in the tank, whether it's knowledge or capability, and confidence. It's going to be a barrier for you. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So, Jane, what impacts people's ability to do better with money? And can you speak about what you see are the challenges or obstacles that people face when they're trying to do money better? Yeah. Look, for me, I, I work from a, a trauma-informed financial well-being model. And what that means is, is that our past experiences will affect our relationship with money, right? So this could be, and hopefully we're starting to understand that trauma is not those highly terrible events such as neglect or abuse or, you know, horrible events, but actually trauma can be that sort of quite ordinary, you know, the the fact that we might have an accident and then we don't really recover or that we you know, a divorce might be a form of Mm. trauma or that bankruptcy can be a form Mm. of trauma. Anything that really affects our resilience, that we doesn't mean that we, means that we don't bounce back is potentially a traumatic event. So I like to look at that in relation to our money. And it actually, when, when I work with clients and I say, look, the fact that you had a really difficult childhood, I know that you were fed and your parents were present most of the time, but the fact that, you know, they were struggling, they were under duress, whatever the situation, that is experienced as a traumatic event for that developing nervous system. So no wonder you struggle as an adult about being your own sense because really what's happening in those situations is we're learning those survival adaptations from our parents. And if our parents didn't have great survival adaptations, then we're going to be repeating 
not yeah. such supportive practices. And so, and particularly, you know, when I see often anecdotally, I, I'm not sure if I said this in our last time together, but anecdotally, I see that people that have had birth trauma will yeah. have a challenge around money. Oh. Be, meaning that because, yeah, they basically they come into life feeling less sort of safe. Safe, you know, the world's not safe. I, yeah. my, my own physiology is not safe, so yeah. I don't really know how to be totally grounded, totally yeah. kick ass, basically. Yeah. And so that has huge impact on the way they do money and survival. Oh. So that's developmental. Anything from Perry before us being born to about eighteen. Then you have shock trauma. Yeah. So right. shock trauma is that event that yeah, you may have had an accident. You were in hospital for all those times you know time and then basically you have to come back out into the world or that your partner died suddenly yeah. or that you got sick or mm -hmm. that you your business went upright or you lost your job whatever yeah. it is they're shocking events that people find sometimes hard to recover from yeah. so if we look at that con that we put that as the background of how we do money right yeah then we can say, okay, I mean, it's actually when I talk to clients about this or wherever I'm working, if I'm working with clients or workforce, I'm often saying this and it's actually like a really great relief for people because they go, yes. okay, right, yeah, I can own <laughs> a little bit of my hard history yeah. and my challenges and actually that's kind of a good reason to say, look, I'm not bouncing back, I'm not as resilient, yeah. but that's okay. I can now start from not having to beat myself up I can actually yeah. say yeah I have to I, I need a bit more support because I have yeah. been through this difficult period so having a trauma-informed financial model or financial well-being model says that there's more to money than just the numbers yes. it is a deeper thing that has to do with a sense of resilience sense of risk and the capacity to manage risk and stress now mm. if with my overspenders, their adaptation has been that when they get stressed, they overspend, right? Yeah. I often work with them. How can we put in other more resourcing or less costly, you know, nothing that's going to spend you money to manage stress? Maybe that was something that you started to do when you were an 18 and now that you're 35, you can't shake it off. All right, let's find out better ways to deal with stress than going out and having to do retail therapy. Yeah. Same with risk. What is it that, you know, do you not do due diligence around money when you're into that risk profile because, because you just have no capacity to manage a large amount of risk? It's too stressful for you. Okay, so how can we get you feeling more capable to take on bigger risk, yeah? Yeah, especially women exactly. um, taking on bigger risk. Yeah, that's right. And particularly when you're structurally, as a woman, you haven't been exposed to it, as we've yeah. started in the beginning, then it's going to be even more challenging. So just having that trauma-informed view, yes. you know, as a somatic experiencing practitioner, we talk about trauma a lot. The structural issue of gender can sometimes be a trauma response. Well, yeah? exactly. And that, that underlying trauma that may be there, it's certainly not for all women these days, but for women raised in a traditional or marrying into a traditional structure where they're already feeling and they, in fact, probably are disempowered 
to then being able to push forward financially, become empowered financially, they're put, having to push through so much resistance barriers and yeah. stigmas and societal norms potentially breaking free of those cultures. Yeah, exactly. Know. And the barrier on the inside as well. Yes. The things, do I have a right? That inner critic that might keep you coming on in and keeping the status quo and you've got to fight that inner critic or you've got to fight that saboteur or whatever it is that is part of your personality or psychological makeup that keeps the status quo and these are big things for people and women you know so that just to notice that you know it's it's a lot I mean I really love my work because you know often people think look you know, I'm intelligent, I'm really capable in so many areas of my life, but this thing around money I'm really terrible about. Yeah. And I'm like, well, it's just a block. It's just sort of a a kind of a little part of a, it's a wall that we have to break through. It's not that you have to become anything other than who you are. You don't have to transform yourself in a way that is phenomenally different because if you're intelligent, if you've got a you know, a couple of skills, if you've been keeping your day job down or or even if you haven't but you're still here, Mm. there's deep intelligence in there. There's deep capability. And what I like to do is actually use what you have right now. We often think this thing around money, I've got to be somebody else. Actually, no, you just have to be you but we just got to get that block out of you, you know. Yes. And, and an obvious place for money challenges is in intimate relationships. What are some of the more common challenges you see working with couples and money? Yeah, look, I actually set it up in my practice that I don't actually see couples together. Right. Because for me, I see money as it's kind of it's kind of the primary wounding. I look at money and survival, even before we go into relating, you know, relating yeah. in other. It is about how I going to do that. But yeah, I mean, how do you see it? I'd be interested to see how, of course, it would be a theme in, in your own practice of working with people and the issue around money in relationship. Oh, look, it's so important. How couples handle money and manage it together is indicative of the nature of the relationship very much. So when my couples say we've never had a joint account, that's a challenge because if they can't share money and do money management together and have a sense of ownership collectively about their money or some of their money at least, then they're living separate lives most likely and certainly maybe not entirely but in that sense. So we like couples to have access to joint accounts, make joint decisions as well as having individual money. They may earn their own individual money and withhold some of it for their own use that they agree on, Mm. that's as equal as possible ideally. They may have one person who brings the income into the relationship and still there's an ability to have equal independent access to certain funds, which Mm. the couple agrees on. It's not about who brings the money in, it's about how they share the money together and then have their independence. You know, one of the rules of thumbs is, Perhaps you agree on $5 or $50 a week that you each draw from the joint account Mm. and there's no questions asked as to how you spend it. That kind of independence is what we're talking about. So, yeah, it's, it's indicative of the nature of the relationship. Yeah, look, and I, I agree with that. I think it, money is a really great lens. It's a great lens for many things. It's a, a lens of the capacity for self-care, self-responsibility. What is it in relation to others? in relation to the world, how you perceive yeah. yourself in levels of success or failure. I mean, certainly in Western society as we live here, money is unfortunately a marker of levels of success and mm-hmm. failure. 
even though we may be a wonderful parent to our children, we might be a wonderful individual in our community, if we somehow we've unfortunately built up a structure that actually money is the measure of our success or contribution in a way, you know, and I find that very, very painful. for, And people found it very painful for a lot of people, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of people, perhaps women have been the leaders in this or some of the leaders in this area, have developed other skills and strengths and empowerment in communities where they're not requiring money so much to feel that they have achieved, they have succeeded in society, where perhaps, you know, they've raised awareness, they've got groups going, they've become a great artist or Mm. scholar or business person in a sense of charitable works or or raising awareness Mm. that build self-esteem so hopefully money isn't the only sort of symbol of success in our western societies no no i I, yeah no i don't believe it is but it is a pretty strong force (laughs) well it it has been certainly and driven you know of course because men used to be the main providers of money and i guess to your point as to how money is a lens for relationships that when a female may have been not so much the dominant provider and then wants to become a dominant provider, we see a shift in the the balance and the dynamic in the relationship that Mm. if men have seen themselves as that success in society, as you're saying, of of being the provider and and may even want to step back from that and change their, their values on what constitutes success moving forward in their lives. And you know, sometimes we see in relationships that men take that back seat and say, look, I'm proud of my my wife now or my daughter or whoever the female may be in the family who's now excelling in a way that I've never excelled and mm-hmm. or maybe making more money than I've ever made or just as much. And that's a lovely empowerment to see as well. Yeah. And look, and I think it's interesting too that say when we look at the level of control as well, you know, that's what a dynamic you can often see in relationship. And we know yeah. that as financial abuse, that if, you know, one partner is not allowing you access to the collective funds, yes. because as, you know, as you started out that, yeah, it is a collective, you're, you're there together yeah. as you relate in that partnership together, then all funds and assets are essentially part of that regardless of whether you are a homekeeper or going out mm-hmm. to work yeah and you know we can we know that lots of family law courts have a lot of challenges around people having a capacity to understand that in a way yeah. it's a theme that is very challenging but I kind of get it because when I look at what money is on its deepest most profound level is issues of survival right now if we take that away from the dollars and say that actually this is a threat to my survival then we behave in pretty crazy ways yeah yeah? and so you know I often hear that phrase that people say to me like because I kind of work in the finance areas that we shouldn't be emotional about money but Mm. and I try and shut it down every time because we are completely emotional about money because we're emotional about our Am I going to live? Am I going to have food, shelter and clothing, right? Now, this is primary, primary wounding or primary, primary, the thing that, you know, is this the loss of my job mean I'm going to survive? The loss of my relationship and the divorce, am I going to survive? So, of course, people get highly emotional around that what we do need I think in the relationship place where particularly when there's a divorce is we need to support people 
I mean, the breakdown of, say, community a little bit more and these individuals having to go it alone means is that, you know, yeah, it is a complete threat. Are you going to survive if you have to move out of that, sell the family home and, you know, divvy up the assets? Absolutely. And that's where, you know, when we started this conversation about trauma, these are traumatic events like a divorce and a financial settlement on people, you know, and we need to give it that gravitas. We need to say this is one of the most challenging things and how can we support people that are certainly going maybe through acrimonious divorces? How can we support them better to say, yes, this is a really challenging thing that you're going through. How can we better support you so that you're not tearing each other apart and certainly, you know, affecting any children in the part of it? Oh, and, and that's one of the hardest things that yeah. that I see women going through. Unfortunately, it's mostly the women that, oh, for whatever reason, that seem to be the ones being traumatised through these processes that, yes, they've got kids most likely, most often, and their kids are still young enough to have custody issues involved. And, mm. and, and so often, sadly, I see men feeling obviously very disempowered in the process themselves who often drop their salaries in order to pay less child support to punish the female for whatever Mm. reason of their own. All of that just makes a call for how do we support people to better, you know, so how do we support people post-divorce to thrive, both parties, you know. It's interesting that like that is a cohort that I have is women coming to me that are in the process of divorce and feeling because they didn't have autonomy and self-agency throughout the relationship that how the hell are they going to take on their partner who has Mm. had that all of their life and feeling completely incapable to take that on, not feeling that they have the gumption or the chutzpah to be able to really go, no, I need to stand for that and walking away from it because they just didn't feel capable to take it on in their yeah. divorce thing. Yeah, walking away from less than what they should have got. Yeah. And that that is the kind of chronic structural problems we have. Yeah. Is, is that then women are behind the eight ball. If you know, let's say that they've gone divorced, they didn't have the capacity to be able to really negotiate their way out of their financial settlement in a really more fair way. Instead, step away and say, look, I just haven't got what it takes to do it. And yeah. then part of that bigger cohort of less superannuation, less assets, less everything. So, yeah, just to kind of put it in context that it's these big structural challenges of not having people support for people that are divorcing, not having agency for women when it comes to the capacity to be able to go into negotiation or, or have mm. expose them to that confidence of being able to have agency amount money. Yeah, it creates chronic problems that go on and have a lasting effect, you know, have a traumatic impact. And as you mentioned earlier on, we, this really needs to start in families for girls being educated as to how to manage money, their rights about money, seeing money in the same way that men see money and being treated and educated in the same way that men are mm. about money and being set up in the world of work so that they can feel autonomous even from an early age, and how to manage and budget with money yeah. so that they're more empowered. Yeah, look, there's, there's a lovely, I can't think of her name, but it's something about don't teach women information, teach them courage, yeah? yeah. It's a TED Talk by someone. I'm sure you, people could go and have a little look at it. But the thing is, is that as a somatic experiencing practitioner, I'm looking at the nervous system. I'm looking at the fight, flight, freeze response constantly. That's where mm-hmm. we go. Yeah. Now, when 
when you're not supported to be who you are, be your gender, yeah. we see that as a as a threat to our survival, right? Mm. So if you're less than, i.e. be a woman, <laughs> then already from the get-go you've got a threat to your survival. That yeah. I um, I live in a society, I live in a, a cultural structure that says I'm slightly less. Mm. That means that the capacity to learn, learn the most that I can is under threat. The capacity mm. that I'm going to probably earn less than men is going to be true. Yes. And these are all trauma responses. Yes. This is all a threat to our survival, deeply, okay. most basic principle. And okay. so what does that, those continual messages set up yeah. in us? I'm less than, I'm less than. I don't have a right to fight. I don't have a right to earn. I don't mm. have a right to thrive. These messages are laid down early, 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 early. And then women wonder why we're kind of wobbly and not kicking it, you know? I know, I know. And so money and women and and women do approach money differently, don't they, when they face these different challenges with money? Absolutely. Look, research says the, the exposure that men have around money or even management or as a provider says that they they will be able to you know what is what is that funny thing that you know most men that are underqualified job feel that they're totally prepared for a job and most women that feel completely qualified for a job feel like they're not prepared for the job you know (laughs) now that that is a systemic cultural structural belief whatever it is you know that's been set up in our society and so it makes dealing with money challenging on an individual level you know really most of my my financial therapy sessions with people is just going through that psychoeducation when you are born as a as a woman you're going to yeah. have all these things even beyond you beyond you as an individual stacked against you mm-hmm. so sure you might be confident you might be feeling powered you think you might be totally rocking it but you've got these structural barriers right in front of you so if you if you're finding it challenged absolutely you know it's pretty understandable and it's not just structural challenge it's biological too because you know can't get away from the fact that women are breeding the child and so feeling much more attached emotionally to the child and then if they're abandoned or need to escape from the this second parent who's presumably helping to raise the child then they are much more vulnerable just simply by nature of biology yeah, exactly. And and also, I mean, even the thing, you know, there's that thing of time is money. Well, you know, if you're out of the workforce raising children, yeah, that's time right there mm-hmm. of time of money that you are not getting. Yeah. And things like I know there's a lot of campaigns to say that we have to start looking at superannuation payments to mothers, yeah, working mothers, so that they're they're not behind. I mean, one of the biggest cohorts that of, of homelessness is women over 55 who yes. were the carers of yes. the rarers of children and then the carers of family and this is how we treat them is that yeah. they're ending up on the street because exactly. they didn't have the access to superannuation mm. they may have either divorced or that they you know had a, a widowed or whatever like that and then didn't have agency so that they didn't feel capable to take on you know what their their situation may may didn't even work for all those years as yes. well, so didn't have that recurring income. I mean, it's you know it's a pretty bad slant on our society that yes, our mothers and carers are ending up being homeless. 
Absolutely. Shocking. Yeah. So, look, but, you know, one of the things I was kind of interested also to talk about, and particularly that I see for women, is depending on this specific type of trauma, relational trauma, that can also create a level of bias in our investment strategies. Mm. So what I mean by that is is that our specific type of trauma for women or anyone, in fact, can have a specific type of effect on the way we are with money. Yeah. So what that means in general terms, I have a lot of this. I see it as a bit of a theme and I I call it trauma-informed investment biases. Right. So let me say that. So let let's say that you have, you may have got some inheritance, and you're a woman, but you're thinking, okay, I need to do something. Maybe you've got a million dollars or something that you got investment from your parents, you know, endowment from your parents, and then you need to look at, okay, how am I going to invest that money? You know, I see just from the structural inequalities that we've mentioned that. Often women find dealing with major banking systems and major sort of financial institutions threatening, intimidating, because yep. they may remind them of their domineering father, say. Perfect. Yep. Or, or even a partner who may have been domineering. And they, they may, you know, having been a young adult even, feel that they can't cope with or that they're, you know, as soon as that sort of severity of that institution that's serious and sort of often white male is hard to deal with and makes them feel frustrated, anxious. And that trauma that you're talking about can be resurfaced. Yeah, absolutely. There's actually one of the episodes that I do with on my own podcast, um, which was about financial abuse. And Dr. Curtin, I'm interviewing on that. And she talks about her own history of a domineering father and how she, for a long time, really rejected the system of money because of this control that he had in sort of placed in what she saw of her mother and how he used to dole out money to her and how it was a control thing and then to even when she was growing up. So that exactly that's right, that, that, you know, for women, particularly when they have that domineering or traumatic experience around Mm -hmm. maybe a patriarchal system, you know, father, it can end up being that then they reject certain things like, Mm -hmm. you know, banking structures or mortgages and things like that and then go in for more risky assets or or instruments because they kind of want to reject the mainstream because that mainstream represents that that father figure, that dominating father figure. Now that really I I call is a trauma-informed investment bias. We're actually cutting ourselves off or sabotaging ourselves because of these trauma biases that we have that, you know, I'm going to reject the white man's mortgages because that's just, oh, that whole system kind of reminds me of my father and his, you know, or whatever other trauma I've experienced. And we reject it and say, I want to go a bit more in risky things like, I don't know, what's, you know, NFTs or whatever those cryptos and things like that. But, yeah, so people are potentially risking their their money mm. because of these trauma biases. And, you know, that's that's kind of frightening for, for, you know, it really worries me that I see that often happening in, with women, that yeah. they will refuse to go into that system because that just reminds me. Or even, you know, even the idea of not taking on a mortgage yes. regardless because it was just like, oh, all that was all my family stuff. You know, all yeah. this kind of money and wealth was just too, the way, the grotesqueness that I saw it in my own family, I don't want mm. to be part of it. 
well, I get that, that, you know, you didn't like the way your parents did money or the way you were brought up about money, but don't sabotage yourself because of that. It's important that you look at asset accumulation for your own longevity and how can we work with healing some of those parts that means that you're not going to be like that, but you don't sabotage your own financial well-being because of it. Definitely. And again, we can see that often these patterns really come from family of origin and teaching kids about money, having as equal as possible a marriage where you're demonstrating equality about money to your kids because it's showing kids, of course, more than telling kids that is how they learn. So yeah, yeah, starting, starting early. Look, and I think that's the thing. I mean, unfortunately, you know, you're going to mess up your kids a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) But if we know that or if you invite your children that they can get support, you know, that that you can create a kind of an openness to say that the way we do money, relationship, life, career is not the way you should do it and that we encourage you to get support, get guidance, find pieces that you know pieces and places and people that can support your growth and 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 that's the kind of best way and that could also be around money and the thing that I really love and passionate about the fact that I do this career is is I'm opening up this narrative to say this is a highly vulnerable making element of our life Mm. and we need support in it you know I'm I'm sure I've said it to you I've said it a a couple of times money is the great equalizer it doesn't matter whether you have a lot or you have a little the way it affects our mental health is the same yes now we have to just like any mental health we need to see money as a mental health issue not just numbers and I think we need to talk about it more we need to get courageous about getting the support that we need yeah it's it's a big, big, big deal. Yeah. It is. And, and getting back to your point about children, you know, encouraging them to get more information beyond the family, I think role models, for particularly for women in society and girls in society, if that could be, you know, more explicit in schooling and in families that they encourage their daughters and sons to seek good role models or to provide those good role models for, for their kids about managing money. You know, there are investment clubs that kids often join and I think these are good training steps. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. I mean, you tell someone, but if you show them, it's a very different thing. And sh- and having model, you know, role models around women either succeeding, having agency, having more CEOs as part of company structures, having more women on boards. Mm. These are all cultural, they're all cues that say, yes, I can, I'm allowed to thrive, I'm allowed to strive as a woman, as a girl, you know, growing up and things like that. And those all those images that we see around us are, are really important in building that level of self-confidence and, and saying and capacity to say, yes, I can. You know. Absolutely. And at different ages, there's different role models and different ways of educating ourselves as women about money and how to manage it and I guess women are interested in different aspects of money at different ages. Yeah that's right I mean just like any life stages as you know as practitioners we know that things change and and focus changes depending on the life stage that we're in. Yeah it's important to know that that what what's happening to you at 21 to to 30 is going to be different from when you have children to when you're now looking at retirement 
and to say that that at each of those stages you need to start a different approach, another le- level of learning around financial well-being, around financial strategy, literacy, whatever it is. You know, maybe it might be interesting just for people to understand that a little bit of terminology, financial literacy is all the knowledge about budgeting, investment products, institutions and all that. So that's the knowledge. Financial capability is the capacity to be able to do the budget to do the saving? Have I got what it takes to save every week? Have I got it takes to stick within a budget? Have I, so that these are very different elements. So you have to either find out about the knowledge, but also find out about the capability. Have I got what it takes? And that's what creates financial well-being. Yeah. And that's what you help people with. So people like yourself, financial advisors, therapists, these are the type of people that professionals that people who are wanting more of this awareness could consult yeah so if you so just to get really clear for our listeners so if you wanted a support so financial counselors people that work with you in crisis that we see in the floods or if you've got massive amount of debt or that yeah you know under crisis financial crisis a financial advisor is someone that when un- with a certain level of assets that you have, you will most likely have to pay for their service. They will, if let's say a figure is probably an easy one, if you had over $500,000, yep. a financial advisor would be able to support you to put your money into the particular type of assets. Like, do you want to go into managed funds, you know, term deposits, things like that, or into property? A financial therapist is this is the person that you come and see when you go, you know what, I don't know how to do all that. I don't know yeah. how to budget. I, I just feel stuck around budgeting. I feel stuck around. So it's all the soft skills, confidence, empowerment, behavior modification, all that. Really, I it's the psychological component. And and so someone who doesn't have over $500,000 who really needs to start earning more and saving more would see a financial therapist. Yeah, if you're finding that you're sabotaging that. I mean, look, it's not even to say that over five, I don't, I can't advise you about what financial instruments you can use, but I certainly have people that have a large amount of money, so that's not necessarily right. And whether you have zero or millions, you can come and see a financial therapist. Okay. If you've got the psychological problems with your money that you're either feeling issues of self-esteem or incapable to be confident, you know, maybe you're risking money as a behaviour, mm. so that you're starting to play with your own superannuation and you're starting to risk it because you've retired and you're bored is yeah. another kind of thing, then maybe that's I can support you in saying what's the deeper issue behind that behaviour. Yeah. yeah. And, and look, there are a lot of women working in banks, we were talking about them, how they can be threatening to a lot of women, but seeking a female, if you do find banking threatening, to just go and sit within your bank to chat with about these things. You can consolidate debts. You can find out what your options are just within the bank in terms of saving and managing money and sort of shopping around till you find a nice female that you feel comfortable talking with in a bank. Yeah, I think is a good way of breaking the ice for women. Yeah, absolutely. And there is certainly a lot of resources out there. There's a lot of people doing financial literacy and there's lots of women that are doing financial literacy, which is about Mm -hmm. learning about knowledge and products. And also the government, ASIC financial capability, yeah, is doing, there's a whole section of the 
the government which is focusing on economic empowerment for women. So it is a big focus. Yeah. But just to kind of understand, there is two parts. We know that a lot of research has said that to be good with financial well-being, knowledge, which is all about products and budgets and things like that, is only about 9%. Wow. Psychology and behaviour takes up 61% of being Gee. good with money. Yeah. Wow. So fi- we often say, oh, I need to be more financially literate. Well, we know that also 65% of the people that know how to budget don't. Yeah. So that's the difference from knowing and doing. Yeah. yeah. So if you have problem with the doing, I know how to do it, but I don't do it. You come and see me. Excellent. And look, the sisterhood can be alive and well. I know that I lean on or have lent in the past on older female friends in particular who have dealt well with money and I've learned a lot through them just as friends and I think more of that sort of reaching out to other females that are doing well or seem confident about money and they're managing well and rather than being shy or embarrassed if more women could do that and support each other in being mentors that, that would just be such a good thing for the sisterhood. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's it. It's about supporting. I mean, it's just like any mental health issue. Yeah. We need to say, we need to at some point reach out and get support. And, and you know, money can certainly be a mental health issue. Yeah. Last year, you you launched your money mental health cards. Is that right? That's yep. right. I did. I launched my money mental health cards. They're a fabulous resource to unpack maybe some of the blocks and barriers with you and money. So in there, I talk about money and mindfulness Maybe you have, you know, what's it like you and spending and what happens to you when you, you know, look at your budget. So you're looking at your budget and are you kind of going, oh, it's all overwhelming or how do you spend? Starting to get a little bit mindful of the practices that we do around money. So there's lots of inquiries. I look at the inner critic, you know, particularly when we're seeking to expand and change, our inner critic will turn on. It's part of our sort of personality structure that wants to keep the status quo. And so what is that? What does the inner critic say to you about money, you and money? Oh, well, that I'm not so, you know, I'm never going to make it or whatever. And just, yeah, to kind of really get explicit about some of the the self-talk that we do. So they're a really great resource for individuals as well as practitioner working with clients or groups or or coaching groups and things like that so they're they're on my website if you want to go to my website it is janemonicajones.com if you don't remember that and just search financial therapy you'll find me in google i have lots of i have my book the billionaire buddha i have my money mental health cards as well as i have a lot of online courses part of my financial well-being series I look at things like money and the inner critic money and the financial saboteur I also do money mindfulness as well as there's also some goal setting online courses as well fantastic so people can go to the financial counseling line if they are seeking help for crisis yes if people are under crisis if they're having extreme debt affected by any of the natural disasters we're having at the moment. The easiest thing for that is to go to the national debt line or just search financial counsellors and lots of care organisations manage that and you can find a service near you either 
Anglicare or Smith Family or Salvation Army, they all have financial counselling services. So if you're in crisis and it's open to anyone, it doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have, that is all open for everybody. Fantastic. And if anyone has been triggered, uh, Lifeline is available 24-7 on 13 11 14. Jane Monica Jones, thank you so much for yet again being such a fabulously informative and interesting guest on this podcast. Amanda, thank you so much for having me. It's such a treasure to talk to someone as learned as you, and I'm delighted that you're doing this podcast and, and putting out this sort of information for people. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jane. Bye. Bye. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me. 